welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. Glad you can be joining us. I want to welcome to this week's show, of course, regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who is one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. And so happy to be meeting for the first time Charity Clark, who is joining us from Williston, I believe, right? That's right. Well, thanks for having me. I have been a fan of the podcast. I've never actually watched it, so I'll have to watch this one. But I've been a fan of the podcast since perhaps the inception of the Montpelier Happy Hour. So really really tickled, actually, to be here with you today. Oh, well, we are so glad that you're joining us. And, and, you know, I so appreciate what you're saying, Charity, because for Emily and I, this is a labor of love. And we make these episodes and send them out into the world. And we don't actually always know who's listening or how many people are listening. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. for. I actually think Charity might be the first person who... I knew who sort of just was like, who I found out randomly listened to it, who wasn't like sort of a core constituent that I'd been intending to hear it. I think Charity was the first person who was like, I listened to your podcast. I'm like, how did you find it? What's going on? I was like, so, <laughs> I sure was so excited, also like deeply confused that that was possible. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Charity. And for those who may not know Charity, she is running for the state position of attorney general. And she has worked in the AG's office for since 2014, I believe. Yes. And when TJ Donovan, the sitting AG said he would not run for reelection, Charity announced her candidacy. And I would love to, to hear from you, Charity. You know, there are so many ways people can serve their community, whether it's volunteering at the local level But for you, why choose public service and specifically elected public service? Well, I do serve my community in other ways. I serve on my library board, which is an elected position. I had to get 30 signatures and appear on the ballot. I'm a justice of the peace. I volunteer. I was uh, a member of the organization that started Vermont's first statewide diaper bank. But In my professional life, as you mentioned, I have worked in the attorney general's office for going on eight years, although I resigned about a month ago to run for this position. And my skill set and experience led me to the conclusion that I would make a very fine attorney general and that perhaps I was even the attorney general that Vermont needed in this moment. And so that's why I chose elected office. I've been having a lot of fun on the campaign trail, but before I started, you know, thinking about what an endeavor this would be be easy or just a job that <laughs> I could just go for a couple of interviews, you know, and see if, if it was a fit. But I'm actually having a ball going around the state and visiting people and towns all over. It's it's really wonderful. It's been really wonderful. So that's been kind of a highlight, a surprise highlight. I actually really enjoy it. If I remember correctly from some of the press releases I read about your campaign when it launched, if elected, you would be Vermont's first female AG? That's true. We've never had a woman AG. I believe it's 26 men and zero women have okay. served as Vermont's AG. So I would be a first. Well, Emily and I, the reason I, I asked that is Emily and I have talked often on this show about 
leadership and what it means to be a leader and what it means to be a female leader in what is often male-dominated spaces. Have you given much thought to that? How's that kind of showing up for you? Oh, we we could have a whole podcast just on that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I think that it is something important to talk about and it's something important to reflect on, not just for, for the three of us who are, you know, women, but for ever, all of us. When I did the Emerge program this past year, and it was, which is a democratic campaign school for women. And it was really incredible to hear the stories of the women who are, were also doing the program. There was 30 of us or so, I think, and everyone has a story to tell about how they arrived at the moment, answering the question, Olga, that you asked, why, why are you thinking of running for office? And a lot of the stories they told were very gendered. It was mm-hmm. typical things that happened to women and that motivated them to take a step of getting more educated and involved with a program like Emerge. I think for me, I have worked in politics and uh, as an attorney for my entire professional life. And, you know, I have been told more than once, actually, that I'm, and you guys are going to buckle your seatbelts for this one. I'm too pretty to be a lawyer and meaning I don't look like a typical lawyer and it's, it's because I'm a woman, you know, and being in a, in a man's world in a man's space has been a part of my professional life. And sometimes that's been harder than other times I've, I'm lucky in, in, especially becoming a lawyer in law school, grading is blind. You're a number, you're not a name. In my professional life, I have felt really fortunate to have great mentors and supports, but it's something that is always with me because it's how I show up. And I think that as chief of staff at the attorney general's office for four years, of course, I experienced, you know, mansplaining and, uh, and other pitfalls of being a woman in a leadership role it's really wonderful to, to say, to look back on my career and see how, how much better things are now than they were when I first started. I worked in the state house a lot when I worked in the governor's office before law school. So late nineties, early two thousands. And then I became a lawyer and I moved to New York for a while. And I was, you know, in our consumer assistance program and I, I didn't, I wasn't appearing in the state house that much. And then in 2018, which is actually, I think when Emily and I met, I started advocating for a bill and it was a really thrilling experience to walk into the state house and realize the women are running the place. You know, the speaker of the house was a woman and there were so many women in leadership positions in the money committees. And it was just thrilling to see, you know, this, this occurred in my, in my life so far. So I love to see that kind of progress. It's really wonderful. And I think it makes for a better Vermont at the end of the day. So it's really great to see. Thank you. So before we jump into sort of a deeper policy conversation about one aspect of your work charity, and I think from when we actually met, can you tell us what the attorney general does? Sure. In a nutshell, the, just like, you know, a lawyer could work for a corporation or a person or a family, a lawyer works for the state of Vermont and that's the attorney general. So if someone slips on a puddle of water in the state house and sues the state, it's the attorney general who defends the lawsuit. If someone puts a toxic waste dump in the backyard of their house, it's the attorney general who could bring a lawsuit, essentially enforcing our environmental laws in in Vermont. The state, you know, wants to contract with someone to buy one billion reams of photocopy paper. Well, 
could be the attorney general's office would review the contract to make sure that it was that it was sound. And there's 140, 150 people who work at the attorney general's office, 90 of whom are attorneys, and there's seven divisions. So it runs really your imagination, environmental, civil, criminal, consumer, all sorts of different hats are worn by the lawyers and the staff at the attorney general's office. Well, I appreciate, Charity, you you sharing some of your personal experience with us just now, because what we're about to dive into in many ways for very for people is very personal, which is how their personal data is used by companies and third parties and healthcare organizations and the state itself. So we are hoping to talk today about data protections in the state of Vermont. I know we've had a number on the books. I think our most recent legislation was 2020, like our our most recent big... Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there's a lot of different types of data. Emily, I would love if you'd give folks just a summary of some of the the things that the, the legislature has been considering around data protections. Yeah, and I want to sort of, to remind folks about who our legislature is and sort of what we've done on this might be helpful to have the full context. So as folks might know, and I've certainly brought this up a number of times, our legislature is significantly older than the general population of the U.S. and even older than the general population of Vermont, which has the oldest population of states in the country, of any state in the country. And We might be behind Maine, but yes. We go back and forth year to year, so I don't... (laughs) I'm not sure where we are with Maine right now. And because we're a citizen legislature, we tend to have folks that have lived a wide variety of lives before they walk into building. And so what one of the things that most surprised me when I came into the building, other than the fact that anywhere else in the country I would be considered middle-aged and I'm considered a child in the state house, is that there are folks in the building who hadn't had sort of any degree of like professional pink collar or white collar job before. And so I, you know, sort of entered the legislature with folks who like hadn't used online calendars before or hadn't used Microsoft Word very much before or just like a level of sort of office computer literacy that I hadn't. It had been a while since I spent a lot of time with folks who weren't sort of already swimming in those waters. I'm not talking about people who are like digital natives versus not digital natives. I think there's probably like three elected officials who are digital natives and I am not one of them. So in that context, I think it's particularly extraordinary that Vermont passed, I think one of the most, perhaps the most at the time, strong and nuanced set of data privacy laws in the country. Europe is sort of always way ahead of us on this, but we really, um, because of the leadership of folks at the AG's office, we really like took some pretty significant steps to protect Vermonters. And so what that started as and what the conversation started as was around the sale of data and how folks are aware or not aware of the sale of data and who who and how folks can sell private data. And so that was sort of a, they're called data brokers. And basically the way Vermont often regulate something as sort of this first step of regulation, which in Vermont is already sort of like a massive political threshold to get over is registering for something. It's just us saying like, yes, 
we know you're doing this. You've acknowledged to the state you're engaging in this activity, and we know that you're engaging in this activity, and we now have a mutual understanding between the state and the individual or the corporation that you're engaging in an activity. And so we had folks sort of register, essentially, if they were selling data. And if someone is selling data and not registered, they're in violation of law. Charity can explain this way better than I can, because I have not worked on anything close to this bill for quite a number of years now. And then from there, we started to explore a lot more things, to explore and how it impacts Vermonters. We started, started to explore who has, a for the people who actually own the, the people whose data is being sold but the sort of original data broker bill that moved forward in 2018 I think so is where we sort of like really crossed a serious threshold for Vermonters in terms of our willingness to jump into this conversation that at this point now both the EU and California have taken much further than we have but we're sort of on a path to continue it. Charity, can you correct all the things that I said wrong and add more words? <laughs> no, that was great. I think that was really great. You know, I, I almost want to take it a step farther back, which is to just make an observation that people can think about, which is, you know how you go to buy an app and you're like, oh, I need a crossword puzzle, whatever you're looking for on your phone. And you're thinking, oh, this one's free. I don't have to pay 99 cents or 2.99 or 10.99 or whatever. I'm going to do this one because it's free. It's not free. They're collecting your data. That's how you're purchasing that app. So anytime something is free, are they advertising to you? Like, why is it free? How are they going to make their money if this is free? And what feels a little surprising to me is that we're not informed of that. You know, that I have to be the one to point out to you. Yeah, they're probably collecting your data. That's how it works. And then as Emily just described, they're, they're selling it. So they're actually making money off of something that's kind of yours. I mean, they're collecting it and they're doing the work, but it just is a strange concept when you think about the more bricks and mortar world that we're used to working in. So if someone put a big acre, well, I don't have an acre at my house, but let's just say they, they use my front lawn and they, they planted carrots and then they sold the carrots at the farmer's market and I didn't get any cut and they just took my, you know, the space in my yard. And this is a terrible example, but you know what I mean? I would expect to have a cut from the carrots at the farmer's market. And yet we don't have that expectation with our data privacy. I mean, this is one tiny facet that has always kind of like, just doesn't feel like it seems a misfit for the way we're used to operating in, in the world today. And I think it's some of it is because people just don't know that it's happening. And unfortunately, that's a theme that you see throughout issues around data privacy is people don't know what's happening. And not to go, go too far afield, but I'll just say the, the classic example in my view of that is the company Clearview AI, who they're not the only the only company, but perhaps the most famous, who screen scrapes, so searches, searches the internet for photographs that they then use to identify people. And those photographs might be posted on Facebook by someone you don't know because you were my example of eating a sandwich on a bench on Church Street in Burlington or you know a, a gallery uh, walk, you know, hanging out with your friends and you're in the background of someone's picture. And suddenly you're in their database. So as another example of, I don't think people know that that's going on. And then Clearview AI then sells that technology. So both they were able to develop the technology using data that they scraped to like really master facial recognition technology. 
And then they sell that technology to police departments and governments who then use it to, in some cases, really like profoundly violate people's civil rights. And so it's like, there's so many layers of both how the data is collected, how it's profited from, and then how it's used that we really have separated ourselves from. And I, you know, I think for me, I've been sort of involved enough in conversations like this that I have some awareness of it, but it's similar to, um, it's just too much to get my head around. And it's too, like, if I want to swim in the waters of, you know, America in 2022, then I have to consent. And so it's one of the, like, many places in my life where I basically have just sort of given up on the whole thing. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, they're monitoring everything and they're profiting off of everything I do and there's nothing I can do about it. And so I'm just going to like keep on click, click, clicking and like checking the box yes without really reading the disclosure. And Charity, I'm sure you read the disclosures, but I think most people don't. And it's one of the sort of classic places for me where like, the idea of having personal responsibility over this stuff is so profoundly overwhelming that I think it's inappropriate to even to begin to ask that of people. Mm-hmm. That's one of the philosophies that, you know, it's something to note is we often are in this arena replacing the onus on the consumer rather than the company mm-hmm. to monitor or, you know, have the awareness. And in, in some case, in some cases that includes a vigilance of just being aware of how they're using your data. And they're, they're not telling you, you have to have Charity Clark tell you on the <laughs> Montpelier happy hour. So I, I think that's something else to note is how, you know, the approach that we've taken so far is that it's really most often on the consumer. Yeah, I was thinking about this issue just yesterday. I have an iPhone. And as much as I appreciate Apple's efforts that they're making to to protect your privacy and and to inform people like an app wants this or to use this as much as I appreciate it. I was going through last night and saying, I don't, I know you're telling me they want to do this, that, and the other thing, but I don't get it. I still don't get it. And you're even telling me, and it was just, I want to nod to what Emily said. It just felt overwhelming. So for Vermont, where we are now, charity, where do we need to go next? Like, are there places that we have done good work, but there are still holes? Like, lay that out for us. Yeah, and really please explain the state of current law, because I was very vague. Well, one of the things I want to say that I really love about Vermont and about our state house is it's really collaborative and very personable in that everyone knows each other. And so when we have conversations about things like data privacy, we're having a really robust and broad conversation, a meaning there's all kinds of people who are involved in the conversation and we kind of take our time. So the legislation that passed in 2020 was the result of privacy, or was that 2019? Anyway, it was a result of hearings that we had and forums to actually have conversations about some of the topics in the data privacy world. And we did that again last year. We had three conversations around the state, also on Zoom, where people were invited to kind of weigh in. And we said, send, you know, your written comments so that we can really talk about where we should go next with this, if anywhere. And at the end of that process, 
the attorney general's office wrote a memo to the House Commerce Committee and also I think the Senate Economic Development Committee who had asked us initially, hey, can you guys get the gang together and have some conversations with stakeholders? And we made recommendations on next steps. And I I'm happy to email you link a link to that so that you have it, you know, in your, I don't know if you have show notes like other podcasts. Do. Do. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, you'll have, I can't these. believe you haven't read them yet. I know. Well, that's so unlikely. I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll send those to you. And then after that, if, you know, a few months after that, we actually had a, a bill that we suggested, you know, here's some language and, and I'll send you that too. And it was really like annotated, I guess you'd say with the comments like, hey, this is from such and such a law, or you probably want to think this, that, or the other thing about this provision. And so we're in the midst of this process. And I'm happy to highlight a few of the the things that were in that memo. The one thing that just seems, some of these, by the way, seem very Vermont to me. They're just so sensible. They're so sensible. And this is one of them. Data minimization. If you don't have the data and then you have a data breach, who cares, right? You, you've already you already shredded my social security number or because you aren't using it anymore or you never asked for it because you didn't really need my social security. You just need my name or something. So that's one premise. And, and let me, can are, I give an example of that for people? Yeah. So Vermont Digger is doing this, like every election season, they do this survey for candidates about like, who are you and what do you want and why are you running so that people can read about it in like a centralized place. It's a very lovely service that they provide. And this year, they went like a little deeper into demographics and stuff than they usually do. And I read the first, I was like, is this actually like, and I am not the only, I talked to another candidate who had this exact same feeling. Like, did I click on the wrong link? And this is actually a cover to like steal my identity because they asked for my birth date, for instance. Because, and I understand this because created my life. If you have a birth date instead of someone's age, then you can regularly update your spreadsheet to know what their age is in two years instead of having to do the math yourself. But if they have my birth date, they have sort of an essential piece of data about me that they're holding rather than if they just asked my age, which is like very casual information that can just float about. I don't care. And that's sort of one We make choices all the time when we run organizations or work at organizations or corporations or whatever about even just sort of what we collect about folks. And we often, almost always, and I have created many surveys, sort of one of my pieces of professional purview, we ask for more than we need because we think maybe we'll need it some other time or this data is easier to process this way. Mm -hmm. When in fact, often both folks who are filling out information or providing information will have an easier time and trust your organization more if you ask for less information. And you are less subject to a data breach and protect it if you have no information that needs to be protected. So is that sort of what you mean by data minimization, Charity? Yes. Don't ask for it. And then once you're done with it, just destroy it. There's no reason to have it. And and you, you know, birthday is, and that's defined in statute, personally identifying information and birthday is one of the one of the things. So you've already gave, given yourself because we have a data breach notification act in Vermont, and we get notified. And it's the attorney general's office who keeps track of that. We get notified every day of usually more than one data breach. Our website. When I look at the when I was chief of staff, I I also oversaw the website, and you could look at the back end and see what our most popular pages were, and that was one of them because people had to keep saying we have it we have a data breach very easy 
to avoid that if you just don't keep data. So that's one of the things we recommended. I'm going to just give you some of the highlights of things that resonated with me because there's so many. I don't I don't know that I we have time. But one of the other ones is we had talked, uh, Emily had gone over the data, uh, data broker uh, registry. And one of the pieces of information that data brokers are required to disclose is whether they offer an opt-out to consumers, i.e. I don't want you to sell my data. And this proposal that we had submitted said that we think all data brokers should provide that opt-out, should be required to provide an opt-out to consumers who say no thanks. So I think that that's one that would resonate with Vermonters who may not wish to be a part of the, you know, their data to be spot and sold. The big one, and I, I, I'm going to jump Can I ask this. you a question about that one before we yeah. jump into the next one? Mm-hmm. So I put forward a bill at some point in the last few years related to that, that basically just prohibited Vermont from doing that. The state of Vermont, who is a data broker, is a registered data broker because we collect a lot of data. And I was very informed <laughs> in the way that well, I just can't even put into words what it is to be informed of something in the state house sometimes. <laughs> the Department of Motor Vehicles in particular makes an enormous amount of money for the state of Vermont. It's sort of part of our budget that's figured in mm-hmm. on selling our data. Yeah. And was told that basically like this was a no-go because of that. And I don't even remember who informed me and it might've been someone at the DMV, not another legislator. I was just sort of like bewildered by the particular energy that person had brought to the conversation. Charity, what has, have you followed that? What are your thoughts on that? I haven't followed that for a while, but I think that's another example of something that people might not realize is happening. And so much of this is, we. I mean, it's, it's frustrating when you have the information because you're so passionate about it and other people are like, I don't really get it. Why are you so worked up? For example, a friend sent me an echo and I'm not going to say her name because she will turn on. But the first question I asked her was, are you listening to me? Because she lit up and I was like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Are you listening to me? Some people wouldn't care and just laugh and think, Charity, you're so, why, why Wait, are you what's so an echo? Up? I don't well, know Well, <laughs> it's the, I'm going to, her name is Alexa. Does that ring a bell? Oh. Ah. She's, she's a smart speaker and now she's probably listening to me. <laughs> gotcha. We're, we're best friends. Oh, um, Echo is like one of the smart speakers. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, that's a classic example of something that I think a lot of people probably don't realize that the state of Vermont is, you know, collects, obviously the DMV collects and, and then can sell. I don't know a lot of the details. I remember that coming up, Emily, at that time. I don't know a lot of the details, but it's, you know, data brokers are really common. And, and keep in mind, a data broker is a third party. So it's not like the example of you know, Amazon, I buy my daughter's favorite water bottle. This is the example I always use because it's the one that she like loses the water bottle and then I have to buy a new one. And it's the, it's like the perfect water bottle, like stainless steel, keeps things cold. I'm glad that Amazon keeps track of that information <laughs> that I like that water bottle because then I don't have to find it again. I just go to like the purchases that I had. So, I mean, Amazon, Amazon and I have a relationship and it's okay. We have a first party relationship. If they're selling my incredibly top secret water bottle information to another party and that party is is selling it out to the the water bottle lobby, well, that now we're in another arena. So that's what we're talking about. And I want to sort of explain like how even your daughter's water bottle information like is meaningful to the outside world in a way that could be really uncomfortable. So 
And we can talk about sort of, I think it would be fun to talk about maybe pregnancy in the second half. So only a parent would buy the same water bottle every like couple months or month, right? Like no non-child, maybe, I don't know. But like most most adultish people like either manage to retain their water bottle for extended periods of time or give up and stop buying new water bottles. <laughs> but parents tend to rebuy this same water bottle over and over again. And I would just offer the parenting advice that at some point I said to my child, if you lose the water bottle again, you're paying for the next one. And he honestly did not lose the water bottle ever again. Oh, okay. And I think he was like 10 when we had that conversation. Well, we're still eight. So okay. I think we have some Great. time to a little lose more the water bottle. There. So we are out of time in this first okay. half. So it'll just be a teaser. Like when we come back yes. from the break, everyone can hear about what someone can do with charities, parenting, water bottle information. Thank you. So stay tuned, everyone. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will return in a moment. to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, as well as AG candidate Charity Clark. So glad you could be with us, Charity. Glad to be here. If you are looking for the podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as our webpage, the MontpelierHappyHour.Captivate.fm, our Facebook page, Emily's YouTube channel, and BCTV. <laughs> hey, Emily, where do we? Uh, what do we need to remind listeners of? Well, the views and opinions expressed here on Happy Hour and the guests separately from each other, not any of our workplaces nor the stations that we are streamed and/or broadcast on. Thank you. So. Do we, we are going to get into data protection in a moment, but on the break, you know how Emily and I are, are starting to come up with cocktails since this is the happy hour. Um, and Charity just gave us our great next cocktail. As a, as a mom, she has come up with, as she said, a bunch of non-curses curses. And as podcast hosts who are also on the radio station and are not allowed to curse per FCC rules... I think non-curses curses would be the best cocktail ever. What do yeah. you think, Emily? I think it needs to, and I think it needs to come with a little side shot of fiddlesticks. <laughs> just, just saying. <laughs> that was my non-curse curse yes. that I gave the example of fiddlesticks. I'm not really sure what a fiddlestick is for the side. Is that like pretzels? I, I think see it's fiddlehead ferns in my head. That's what I uh, see. I think it's a swear word that like a, an old British man would say Me a long too. time ago. Yes, we'll absolutely. To, yeah. We'll have to look it up. So I think that the No Curses Curses cocktail definitely has some red in it, right? Okay. And so I would make it may, more maybe a Campari drink. Mm, can't go wrong with Campari. Oh, you're, you guys are really making the drink. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this isn't important. <laughs> so the Montpelier Happy Hour was originally sort of at the end of the day on Friday because we broadcast, we recorded and broadcast live when we started. Oh, and okay. so we would discuss real car and like we would discuss real cocktails. I was having lots of fun drinks in Montpelier. So we would sort of talk about those. And then 
And for a while we were sort of recording at 7 a.m. and lying about it. And then it just got to be much, much, much too hard to pretend we were interested in cocktails at seven in the morning while we were both drinking our first cup of coffee. And so we just gave up on the whole thing, but we're bringing it back by coming up with, I think we might eventually have sort of a cocktail guide of some kind with politically themed cocktails. And so I think this one has Campari on it in it, or we could make it a Bloody Mary with pickled fiddleheads. So I've had some really good Bloody Marys in my time where you have various pickled, I often pickle okra in the summer and like we have put that on Bloody Marys or pickled celery, but we could do pickled fiddlehead ferns and that would go on the Bloody Mary and maybe with a tequila base because a tequila is sort of like a spicier drink than vodka. So maybe it's just, what do you think? I kind of like that. I especially like it because, you know, in certain corners of the world bloody is a is a swear on of its own exactly so it plays i I must give a testimonial that i am stunned by your impromptu cocktail mixing talents ladies wow that these are great well done emily's hidden talents is she's uh as i understand it quite the mixologist so Public service announcement. So I have been volunteer bartending at the Next Stage Bandwagon series, if anyone wants to come see me there. And that's been really, really fun to get my bartending hands back in the mix. But I'm actually thinking about maybe I want to have a paid summer gig bartending as well. So if anyone is hiring for outside bartending events, really anywhere in Vermont, but mostly in Wyndham County, please give me a call. Sorry if that was really inappropriate, little public service announcement. <laughs> okay, as far as so I'm we have decided it is a Bloody Mary with tequila in it, pickled fiddlehead ferns, extra spicy, mm-hmm. which I think also sort of like the Sunday Bloody Mary day drinking is very parent appropriate for the, <laughs> right, okay, good, we've got it. Onwards to data privacy. So before the break, Charity, um, Emily was asking some really great questions around some of the holes in where Vermont has put protections in and, and then where we could do better. So I'd love it if we could pick up there. So what I was saying is that, okay, so Charity's buying this water bottle all the time. Really like advanced analytics firm would be able to figure out fairly instantly that that pattern is the pattern that you correlate with a parent and not a non-parent. And so then Charity's online profile is, and data is tagged as parent and can then be scraped to link with the child who might have a very different online footprint than Charity does. And then that information can be used sort of further for other things. And that's just sort of one example of how like a fairly harmless, like Charity is a person who likes to buy water bottles, can sort of go much further into invading her privacy and her family's privacy. So mm-hmm. Charity, what's your what's the remedy to something like that? You know, I don't, like I said, I don't mind that Amazon has that information. I think we've all had the experience, like, you know, I lived in New York City for six years, but of course I love Vermont. My family was here. I was coming back all the time and always talking about Vermont. So my ads, when I checked my Gmail on the side, they have ads and it was always maple syrup. Inns in Vermont, you know, they, they didn't know that it was me, Charity Clark, you know, Actually, in my heart, I'm a Vermonter, even though I'm living in New York City. But it's it was jarring. I was like, why does how does it know that I'm a Vermonter? You know, we've all had that experience. And some of it's it's harmless, but there are actually, you know, Emily gave a good example, but there's there's actually a lot when you start to use your imagination, that's when things start to really get concerning. 
So imagine instead of, you know, mom in the water bottle, I'm a mom who is being stalked, who is a victim of intimate partner violence, who is in hiding. We also know that some of the uh, biometric information tools are not as effective when applied to certain races. And that's very... I bet no one knows what biometric means. Oh, okay. So biometric information is information that is unique to you, you know, your face. Or you know how sometimes you'll see someone, you know, like out and about, and you they're facing away from you, and yet you still know it's them by the way they're walking or holding themselves. That's biometric information to their gait. Or, you know, eye scans, face scans, probably not surprisingly, my phone doesn't, I do not use face scan to get into my phone. I have to type out because I don't want my phone to know me. I'm sure it knows me, but I just, it's always makes me a little uneasy. Um, so that's biometric information. And we, we know that there have been misidentification using biometric tools like that to say, oh, this person committed this crime. And it's like, no, that's not that person. And those negative outcomes are more likely to happen if you are a person of color. Well, that's very concerning, deeply disturbing, as a lot of these tools, you know, can be if you take them to, when you start to really apply your imagination of like, what could go wrong with this tool that seems something that I can laugh about with the maple syrup and the water bottle, but actually can be really dangerous and harmful. And that's part of why having the conversations with all the stakeholders, and it's so it's so useful because other people are thinking of things you might not be thinking of. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of that kind of a process. And it's worked really well, I think, in this space because we're all also educating ourselves as we go. Everyone has a little scrap of information and then we get together and now we're sharing information and learning from each other, which is really helpful. And we, we've learned, you know, the really great uses of biometric information, such as, I don't know if anyone has like voice authentication to get into their bank account. Well, that's really great. Having authentic, even the phone, getting into your phone is, you know, some people choose to do that. That's actually a really useful tool. So there's a broad range of how these tools can be useful to us personally, to business, but also they can be used in a way that's not so great. And we need to, I think, be applying public policy in a way that maximizes the benefits while minimizing the negative consequences or the negative aspects. And let me give another example that feels very relevant to today, because I believe a Supreme Court decision might be coming down today, maybe. So a lot of folks use period tracking apps. And it's fairly easy to imagine how a period tracking app when could be used to understand if someone was pregnant or not, and then to sell them products related to being pregnant or not. And that is super duper uncomfortable, but sort of like all makes sense in the late stage capitalism that we all seem to be living and breathing and we're sort of used to. Then there's sort of the next step. There's, and then who uses that information if it turns out that the great computer matrix realizes that you were pregnant and then you weren't pregnant and didn't have a baby. And then there's sort of the next level where you don't even really need to use a period tracking app. So let's say that half my chocolate pretzel exam of the month every month, which is actually true and really never buy them any other time. That info, like we all are patterned, patterned beings driven by hormones. Even people who don't ovulate are driven by hormones that operate on cycles. And all of that is very clear in your sort of purchasing and online behavior. And so when all of that data is sort of synthesized without your permission, it can be used for a really a wide range of both sort of political and market forces. 
back to you, Charity, now that I have <laughs> fully contra- like fully conspiracy theoried this one. Well, I, I will add that there's one aspect we haven't actually talked about, a way that technology and data is used, and that is a geolocation. And one way that that's used, I haven't used this yet. My daughter's too young, but I know that parents want to know where their kids are. And so they might have a phone and they'll, they'll be able to geotrack them using different apps. There have been news reports recently of the uh, possibility of using those apps to track if people are going to abortion clinics. It really feels like a science fiction novel. And, and sometimes you're just kind of, it's jarring to realize, no, that's, that's actually can happen in the real world. We have those capabilities. And, and, and this is a cl- data privacy is a classic area where the old maxim of, you know, technology is outpacing public policy because it's moving so much more quickly than public policy can, can move is happening. But in Vermont, truly, it's remarkable how quickly the Vermont's legislature can act to pass policy. And I don't know that we keep a pace, but we certainly have a better shot at it than a lot of other places. And we're really lucky to have such a nimble legislature who everyone's talking to each other and it's on a human scale so things can move more quickly. And we can respond once we have information about something like this. So I'm really hopeful and Cherry, it's not this. just the legislature, it's the fact that the AG's office, and often you, were able to communicate about this stuff in a way that made sense to any of us in the legislature, because it is super abstract and terrifying and very easy to sort of look the other way and say it's too confusing and beyond our cap- capacity. And so having a group of attorneys and you be able to sort of talk through this stuff with us and, you know, navigate the tough places has been is why we're able to keep on moving forward on this. I thank you. I appreciate that. And you're lauding my nerdiness, Emily. I always appreciate that. But I want to say that this session, we had made these proposals. There's sort of an ending to my my story. We've written that memo I'm going to send you. We wrote that bill. And the legislature didn't pass it, which was completely understandable because the committees I mentioned had their hands full with workforce problems. You know, as, as we know, Vermont and, and, and many places are we're having workforce trouble and they were paying attention to that. But this January, I'm hoping that they will take up this issue. And, and I, I hope that I'm involved in educating the committees because there's bound to be a lot of new people with so many folks leaving the legislature. There'll be a new crop of legislators coming in and, and hoping that I'll be in the position to educate them about data privacy and the landscape and also the opportunities to make our laws better and reflect Vermont's values in our in our statute when it comes to privacy. And I'm realizing, Charity, I never let you. Olga's a very good like full listener, but I like to interrupt. And so I never let you. I think there was sort of a third area that you wanted to name. You talked about the we were talking sort of the opting out option, and then there was going to be something from there. What was the next one? We've already waded into the third area, so it's okay. it's nice to have that segue, and that is a Biometric Information Privacy Act, or a BIPA, and those have been passed in other states. In Illinois, was the first in 2008, and essentially what that would do, and if I can use a, a broad brush, is to say you need notice and consent to collect and sell someone's biometric information, or I should say collect or sell someone's biometric information. And we talked a lot about that in these forums that we had. And one of the concerns, and I love when other states have already done something, because then you get to look and say, oh, this was really good. Oh, this part's not so good. And you, it evolves. And we get to be a state who 
takes the pieces of like makes a, a beautiful quilt of all of the pieces that are working and refining the things that aren't working for, for people. And we've certainly heard from members of the data privacy industry about elements that aren't really working. And we've heard from privacy advocates about elements that aren't really working. So the, the Vermont legislature has an opportunity to create something that's just really, really good and hopefully workable for most parties, not all parties, which is a really wonderful, wonderful thing. And I, I think that it's it involves lawmakers and public servants taking care and protecting Vermonters when they might not realize the dangers that are there. But we know, and, and it's really incumbent upon us to do something when we know what the dangers might be. And also not just the dangers, but I, I really do think that here in Vermont, we have this ethos of privacy of, you know, we just have this expectation, like you're just allowed to be you and do your thing. And it does a, sort of offend our philosophy here in Vermont to have data privacy be in the current state the way it is now. I think there's an opportunity to make it better so that it, it aligns with our values here. You know, we've talked a lot about policy around data privacy, but we also talked about how overwhelming it can feel for folks. Are there things we can do to, to help things feel less overwhelming or help people protect themselves better? I mean, I agree with Emily, it should kind of be a policy first, but are there tools or are there places people can go to learn more tools if they do feel like they want to do that? One thing that we have tried to do in the Attorney General's office is make sure that when a statute is passed, and we have a lot of expertise we're communicating to people, you know, so we'll have a, you know, a guidance or a, you know, just to be helpful. And after the, as an example, um, someplace I look to from time to time, and Emily, I recommend this to you since you said the data broker registry was like, feels so far away. Well, we had put out a data broker bill kind of guidance, and it really is a great refresher to say, oh, this is what this means. This is what this does. This is how you comply. And as new laws are passed, we, we do that to, to be helpful. The other thing that we have at the Attorney General's office is the Consumer Assistance Program, which one of the missions of the Consumer Assistance Program is to educate. We will often have, you know, we have a blog and which tries to, in plain language, describe the work that we're doing and also will advise about, you know, scams, things that are on the horizon that people might want to know about. And that's called CAP Connection. And you can, you can access it on the Attorney General's Office's website. So there's opportunities there. I find there is a reporter called Kashmir Hill who writes for the New York Times. And she had written an article about Clearview AI in, two, in 2020. You know, I kind of follow her work and she just writes really interesting articles in this space. So I would recommend, you know, it, it's readable, very readable. It's the New York Times. Um, if people are interested, you might want to check out some of her articles. And she has an interesting perspective. And then the other place that I would, and those articles are great because Charity, you've sent me a few of them over the years and I have really enjoyed reading them. The other thought that was really helpful for me, which is a documentary that I actually learned about because my son watched it at school, but then very soon after that, there was sort of a tour around Vermont of it is the film Coded Bias, which really sort of goes both deep and broadly into how artificial intelligence, which is sort of one aspect of this and is more sort of like, Artificial intelligence is often built out of our personal data that we did not mm. consent to being used and then is sort of used to do things with our personal data. So it's sort of 
like just to the left or right of adjacent, I guess is the word. It's just adjacent to this conversation about data privacy. Um, but artificial intelligence and how it's really deeply biased around sort of dominant identities and generally white men is a really important aspect of about this, not just because sort of that's ethically or morally wrong to face it, but the way it's used can be problematic. And so that's another really deep, fun, deep dive film if folks like watching documentaries. And I actually don't like watching documentaries and I enjoyed this documentary. So coded bias. Charity, I want to bring us to the second question that I'm asking candidates that we're, we're hoping as many as possible will come on the show between now and uh, August. You know, if elected, is there a policy or a set of policies you would want to see put in place that you believe would make Vermont work better for everybody? Yes. Uh, if I had to pick one thing, which is very hard, <laughs> I think I would pick access to early childhood education you know, starting at six, six months, Mm -hmm. because we have a system now that puts that burden on parents. At the time that we had our bond rating lowered because we don't have enough people, we have a workplace shortage because we don't have enough people working. And these things seem related to me to say nothing of investing in in children, investing in people early on. You know, obviously there's going to be great outcomes for, for children who have attention and benefits and learning that occurs at a young age. I know, and, and as, par- as a parent, you know, I was an older parent. I am a lawyer, so I'm well-educated. I learned so much from the daycare providers that I relied on. <laughs> I mean, so much. And I felt humbled by them every, every day. Mm-hmm. That said, they weren't getting paid nearly enough. They weren't getting paid. I don't think they were getting paid looking back what today we would have considered a livable wage. And all of these, again, these, these seem very related to me. So the most important people to, or who are making contact with our children aren't getting the compensation that they, that they should be. And the, the child care center where my daughter was has closed because they didn't have enough workers. Mm-hmm. So I think that investing in early childhood access to early childhood education and systems that that support families so that they have access i can't think of one thing that would make a bigger impact on improving vermont and especially for women since women are you know statistically more often the ones who take on the childcare burden for families that really reminds me charity i have had the privilege of doing interviews with all sorts of people and across my career, you know, people will often say something that will just stay with me. And there was a, a principal who has since re- retired down in Wyndham County, and this will always stay with me. He says, you know, as an educator, when I am designing programs to support children who are struggling, it's actually because we as a society are not supporting their families or their parents. That has just always stayed with me. We have just a few minutes before the the end of the show. Charity, anything you would like to add or that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure listeners, we leave listeners with? Well, I think we hit all of the highlights of, there's so many things to think about when it comes to data privacy. I guess I would just encourage listeners, if, if this conversation has interested you and made you curious, to pursue learning more and make 
adjustments, you know, as, as you see fit, but also to try to get involved. One thing that we saw, and, and Emily was there for some of this, is often the voices that we hear are uh, organizations or even businesses representing other people and not directly people. And we were very lucky. There was a, a man in Montpelier who was retired and just really interested in data privacy. And so we all knew him as if he were you know, a lobbyist or a representative or worked for the state, but he was really just a citizen who was really interested. And I remember when we started having forums, I didn't know his email address. And so I said, wait a minute, does anyone have a phone book? <laughs> you know, like I, maybe he's in the phone book and the younger people are like, what's a phone book? Um, and I ended up having to write him a letter. I like found his address somehow and wrote him a letter to say, we're having this forum and you should come and thank goodness for him because it was really wonderful to have that extra, you know, that extra voice that wasn't someone representing someone else, but an actual person. And we did have a couple, we always try to have at least one forum that was in the evening, which was helpful in getting, you know, just people, people regular citizens. It's really wonderful and incredibly helpful to legislators to have those voices. So I would just encourage people to get involved if you're interested in this. Emily, what, what would you like to leave listeners with, given that you have worked on some of this legislation? First, I'd like to leave charity with the fact that Olga always asks that question as the final question, and it always surprises me. Like she did it when she, every every reporting gig she's ever had, and I've worked with her on various reporting gigs. She's always asked that question. I'm always like, oh, I hate your question. So if she ever interviews you again, know to be ready that she's going to ask you that question. I interviewed fourth I, graders yesterday, and I asked them that question. Too. <laughs> it's, it's serious. And I'm also still somehow never prepared for it. I, I think to really, you know, the personal responsibility part of this is really um, sort of alienating and irrelevant to me for the most part. Mm. And so really encourage folks to think about what would be meaningful to them in terms of data privacy. Mm -hmm. So we add a lot of checkboxes in statute or warnings in statute. And I know that I just like blow right past them while I'm thinking, oh, I bet someone legislated this. That was so nice and well-intentioned of them. And there are places where like a big, bold warning is relevant. Like, hey, you're signing up for an annual recurring package instead of a monthly package. That should be a big, bold warning, right? But for something that you're going to agree to regardless, like not as useful. And so gives like really encourage folks to give some thought to like what would actually be useful, what would be meaningful mm. to you in terms of this. Because I only know my own sort of consumer and technology patterns. I don't know everyone else's. And because I'm thinking about this a lot more often, because I had the opportunity to work on this legislation, I think I'm probably not like the best test case for me to be creating legislation based on. So, and you know, that's true for charity too. So really like just encourage folks to be as you're using technology as you're entering your data. I'm not asking you to protect yourself. I'm just asking you to think about how you're not protected and how you might want to be protected and reach out and let us know about that. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, Charity Clark, if folks want to learn more about you or your campaign, where can they find more information? They can go to our website, which is charityforvermont.com, all spelled out. And there's more information there. And you can also follow me on social media channels, which is usually Charity for VT or Charity for Vermont on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and wait for it soon. We will be on TikTok. It's true. Ooh. And Emily, 
where can people find more information on you? Never going on TikTok. I have an account. <laughs> it's like totally beyond my skill set. <laughs> I can be found at emilykornheiser.org where you'll find links to my email address and my phone number and actually even my mailing address, as well as all of the other social media accounts that are not TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm sure Charity, uh, when it comes to TikTok, is just not admitting to us that her eight-year-old is managing that program because it is probably beyond all of us here. I truly said we should put my niece who's 18 in charge of this. She's, she would be great. <laughs> she just graduated from high school last weekend. Perfect job for a good volunteer who's, who's of that. Uh, she grew up with TikTok. Oh, thank you everyone for tuning in this week. The Montpelier Happy Hour will return next week at 2 p.m. on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro your community radio station. Have a great weekend, everyone.